All too often, our beliefs in God have been formed by faulty thinking, bad information, poorly processed life experience, and bad influences. This message is the third in the series, Believable. The message is entitled, What Do You Believe About God? Part 2. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and your teaching sheets as we dive into the second part of the message that I started last weekend entitled, What Do You Believe About God? in a larger series entitled, Believable. And we're involved in this series actually for uh, the next uh, couple of months together, this month and next month for sure. We're talking about how you and I have the ability to choose right beliefs in our lives and how important it is that we do so. Your beliefs, your belief system is vital to your life because your belief system, what you believe, determines what you think and how you think and how you behave. A lot of folks really think that their behavior is somehow separated from their beliefs, but you really know what someone believes by looking at how they behave. Your behavior is a reflection of belief systems. And in all of the belief systems of your life, there are four basic areas that you and I have beliefs, beliefs about God, beliefs about ourselves, beliefs about other people, beliefs about the world around us. And of all of those four categories, the most important area of belief is your belief about God. There's nothing more important in your life than what you believe about Him. And how vital it is that you and I choose to believe the right things about God. And oftentimes, because of the life experiences that we've had or just by the way that we've gone through uh, life exposures and those things that have been a part of life experiences, we sometimes have skewed uh, perspectives of God. And so what I'm doing in uh, this series as a part of this, uh, these two messages is helping us to kind of get back to some basics about who God is and what you and I need to believe about Him. What is the truth about God. And last weekend I talked about several things. We talked about that God is a real and living God, that He does exist. I gave you some of the basic foundational elements of the proof of the existence of God. We talked about the fact that there is one God who is eternally present in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the fact that God indeed is a good and personal and loving God. He's a responsive God to us, that God is not distant from His creation, not distant from us, but He's very involved in us because He really does love us. Today I'm going to share with you five more of these truths that you and I need to know about God. And we'll see, uh, hopefully, I, I was able to get through all five of them last night, so uh, there, there's a lot of depth here, a lot of information that we have for us. So uh, at the very least, you'll get the fill in the blanks for all five today. And I will dive into some of them perhaps a little more deeply than others. But let's start with today's uh, first point, is that we must understand, according to the Bible, that God is a right, holy, and just God. That God is a right and holy and just God. To understand the love of God, you have to also understand the righteousness of God and the holiness of God because God's love is tied in with His holiness and with His righteousness and with His justice. And when we say that God is righteous or that God is right, it means that God is by nature always right, that He always makes the right judgments, He always makes the right decisions, He always executes the right justice, He always does the right thing. Now, the reason this is so important to understand about God is that when you and I know that God is right or righteous, it gives us the capacity to trust Him because you can be sure that God will always do the right thing in your life. 
that when you're in relationship with him because he is righteous, he cannot do anything other than what is right. He cannot do anything other than what is best for you and good for you in your life. And so this is a foundational principle because if you don't believe in the righteousness of God, you will not trust him with your life because you'll wonder, perhaps I can choose better for my life than God can. Maybe I'm right and God's wrong. We never say this outwardly oftentimes, some perhaps we will, but in our heart of hearts, we can have this mindset that perhaps I have a better read on my life than God does. But I want you to know today again that God is the right, righteous, holy, and just God. It also means this. It means that God always executes justice, that God always not only does right, but God always makes things right. Because sometimes in life, things go wrong, and people do wrong, and people do us wrong, and we wonder, will, they ever, uh, have, will we ever have justice? And the Bible teaches us that ultimate justice belongs in the hand of God. I promise you that if you've been wronged in your life, God knows how to take those wrongs and make them right. Amen? Valuable to understand. This gives you so much security in your relationship with God. Listen to Psalm 11, verse 7. For the Lord is, what is he? It doesn't just say he does righteous things, but he is what? By his very nature, he is righteous. What does he love? He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I've, this is Paul at the latter part of his life. He's about to die soon. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, notice what he says there, the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So Paul says, it's not just about me. Anyone who has the same kind of relationship with Christ as I do can have an, an awareness that they will stand one day before the righteous judge, and he will make all things right. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, when we think of God being righteous and God being just, what often gets us messed up in the process, as I mentioned a moment ago, is the fact that people do not always treat us rightly and people do not always treat us in a just manner. And so our tendency is to want to get back at people who hurt us to extend justice our way, but the Bible says that God can even take care of that in your life. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath or God's justice. For it is written, it is mine to avenge or mine to justify, we might say, to bring avengement there. I will repay, says the Lord. So again, we have the confidence not only in our lives, but also in the circumstances surrounding our life that God is just to us and God will do just justice around us. Now, let me talk about one more thing before we move on to the next point today. In the context of God's justice, we have to understand how this applies to us as believers in Jesus Christ in relationship with God. Because when you and I came into the world, we were born into the world as sinners. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So all of us are sinners, okay? And because we're sinners, we have hurt the heart of God. We have, if you will, we have broken God's law. That's what sin is, the breaking of the law of God. And lawbreakers deserve just punishment, correct? 
When you break the law, you're guilty, and when you're guilty, you deserve just punishment. But here's the beautiful thing of what God did for us, that God being a just God and realizing that we deserved just punishment for our sins, God so loved us so much that He actually sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to actually take the just penalty for our sin for us so that we could actually go free. One of the greatest exchanges, the greatest exchange of all, where Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. It's incredible to think about. Listen to Romans 3, beginning in verse 22. We are made right or justified with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, not no matter who we are. For everyone is sin. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. Chapter 5, verses 8 through 11 of Romans. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from what? From God's condemnation or God's judgment against us. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Jesus took the penalty for our sins. Jesus paid the price of justice for us so that we could experience God's righteousness. So God is right and God is holy and God is just and he justifies us in and through our relationship with Jesus Christ. The second thing I want to talk about today, when you and I think about God, who is God? What is he like? What should we believe about God? God has revealed himself to us in creation, in revelation, and through the incarnation, Jesus Christ. I'm going to write some words on the board here today. God's desire is to reveal Himself to you. God wants you to know Him. God does not want to remain distant from your life. God wants you to know Him. To experience or gain knowledge of God, God has given us three primary things, okay? Creation, we get to know God by creation, by revelation, or another word you may want to write down there is the word inspiration, and that's through the scriptures, the Bible, and through the incarnation, that's the coming of Jesus Christ, God becoming flesh and living among us. So these are the primary ways, and through obviously through the, through the incarnation, It opens up now, by faith in Christ, access to the Holy Spirit who gives us the revelation, inspiration of the Scriptures and of who Jesus is. And so, these are the three primary ways that God reveals Himself to humanity. The first way that God reveals Himself to people is through, what's the first word here? Creation, exactly right. We talked a lot about that last week. I'm not going to take time this week to talk a lot about it. We talked about the existence of God, the fact that He is the first cause. There is a universe because there was a cause to the universe, and God is that first cause. God pre-existed the universe and called the universe into being. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1, verse 1. We talked about the fact that we know that God exists by, by the design that is in the world, that God, there can't be a design without there being a designer, and God is the one that 
that designed the world that we're in. We talked about conscience and morality, how you and I as human beings carry a conscience in us and we have a sense, some sense of morality, although many times it's warped, at least there's some sense of a dimension of right and wrong that came from God. We know that God is in creation by the way that he fine-tunes the universe. We talked about gravity and the distance from the sun and all those elements that describe a fine-tuning aspect of God and all these things point to creation. But I want you to listen today to a couple of passages that help us to be reminded of the power of creation and revealing God to us. Notice Psalm 19 beginning in verse number one. The heavens declare the glory of God. So the heavens, that's when we go out and look up in the sky. The heavens declare the glory of God. Declaration means that it's it's declaring something. It's speaking something. The heavens speak or declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, what do they, what do, they do? They, they do what? They reveal, okay? They reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. So what I want you to see is that when God created this world, this universe, this Milky Way system that we're in, ga- galaxy that we're in, God put those stars up there up in the sky. And when you and I walk out at night and we see the starry sky, it is preaching a message to us. It is saying, there is a God. I exist. God exists. There's a declaration of the glory of all Almighty God. When we walk out today and look at the sun, the sun is a declaration of the glory of God. So God in creation is giving us a message. Listen to Romans chapter 1 verse 20. Since earliest times, men have seen the earth and sky and all God made. So it's talking, what is it talking about here? Creation, okay? Since earliest times, men have seen the earth and sky and all God made and have known of his existence and great eternal power. So they will have no excuse when they stand before God at judgment day. You know, when everybody gets before God on judgment day, nobody's going to have an excuse to say there was no God. Because God put a message up in the sky. God put a message in creation and you have to be blind not to see it. It's there. And so God wants us to open our eyes to the reality of His revelation to us in creation. He's revealed Himself to us in the world around us. That's why I love to go on nature walks and just take a look at the beauty of nature because when I see nature, I'm not seeing God, but I'm seeing the handiwork of God. God is not in nature in the sense that that's God, no, but it's the handiwork of God that we see. And so you can admire nature because nature points us to the Creator God. The second way that God reveals Himself to us is through revelation or inspiration or through the Word of God. One of the greatest testimonies to the reality of God and the existence of God is this book called the Bible. This book called the Bible is a miraculous book. I want to talk to you about some aspects of the Bible today so that you can have a solid confidence in Scripture. So you can know that this book that we have, the 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, that we can have solid, reliable evidence that this indeed is the Word of God. See, there are a lot of people who will try to tell you, oh, that's just an ancient book. You know, how do you know that it's really God's Word? I want to give you some ways today that you can know that this is the Word of God. Number one, I'm going to talk to you about the bibliographical test of Scripture, okay? You guys are going to have to stay with me for the next few moments because this is going to get a little bit technical, but turn to your neighbor and tell him, listen really closely. Go ahead and tell him, say, listen really closely, all right? 
There's bibliographical evidence for Scripture. Let me explain what that means, okay? And I'm not going to go into great detail. You can study this on your own if you'd like to. It's a lot of, lot of information out there available for you. But the Scriptures that we have, how many of you know that the Apostle Paul didn't read out of the New International Version? Right? Okay? Right? He didn't have one of these books called the Bible, okay? What they had were scrolls back in, then of the Old Testament. Of course, the New Testament was being written in the first century. And so uh, that was in the process of being written by men that God moved upon. Forty different authors in the Scriptures over about 1,500 to 1,600 years. And so we've got about 40 different people that God used to pen the pages of Scripture over about 15, 1,600 years. And the interesting thing about it is over that, and they're in all different kind of walks of life. I mean, we've got all kind of people from kind of different places. Some were like farmers and some were physicians, okay? And so we've got all kind of people that are putting together the pages of Scripture. And yet from Genesis to Revelation, there is no discrepancy in the message of the Bible. The Bible from the beginning to the end is the story of redemption. The internal consistency of Scripture is amazing. But let's go back to this bibliographical evidence. The original, when, when, these, when our Bible was originally given to us by God, it was written down by the prophets and written down by those that were moved upon by God to give us these words. And those original manuscripts are called the autographs of Scripture. Say that word with me. Autographs of Scripture. Those are the original papers, the original documents. It's when Isaiah wrote those words down on the scroll. Now, what did Isaiah write his words down on? He didn't have the latest Mac, okay? He didn't have high-tech paper or printing presses. He used something called papyrus, okay, or something that was organic in nature, correct? Okay, so anything that is organic in nature, what's going to happen to something over a piece of time? You take just regular paper and leave it outside for a while, what will happen? It's going to Help me out, church. I know you're that smart, okay? It's going to deteriorate, right, okay? It's not going to last. It's organic, so it starts to break apart. So if you're going to have a lasting record of the autograph, what must you do? You've got to make some copies. Exactly right. I knew you guys could get this, all right? And so the copies are called manuscripts, all right? Because this papyrus is not going to last forever, okay? And so we got to have manuscripts. And so the, the scribes in the Old Testament were giving the responsibility of recording the Scriptures. And they were very diligent and meticulous in the process. And so there were manuscripts. Or that is, I would take what I have of Isaiah and then meticulously copy what Isaiah copied. And then somebody would make a copy of that copy who would make a copy of that copy who would make a copy of that copy. So that there was a record that we have until we got to the printing press and we had the first originally printed Bible that now we have obviously the Bible in print. But these manuscripts were critical. Now, what makes, what can give you confidence that these manuscripts are accurate to the autograph? There are two basic things that people use in, in, in studying antiquities or, let, uh, 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 past documents that give them confidence in the originals, and the two things are how close 
are the earliest manuscripts to the autograph, okay? How close are these? And then how many manuscripts, the number of manuscripts that you have, because the more manuscripts you have, the more opportunity you have to, 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 to compare them one to another and see what's really out there, what's really there. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, when it comes to the Bible, what is the earliest manuscript that we have? And then based upon that, how many manuscripts do we have? Let's just talk about the New Testament for a moment. This will blow you out of the water. Do you know that the earliest portion of the New Testament we have is somewhere around 125 A.D., somewhere around that. The, the, the autograph of that from the book of John would have been written about 100 A.D., and so there's only about 25 years difference between the autograph and the manuscript. Most documents in antiquity like even Greek documents, things like, uh, like, like Homer's Iliad and, and Herodotus and those kind of things. We're talking about hundreds of years, hundreds of years between the autograph and the manuscript. We've got 25 years here, and when you look out among all of the, the dimension of what's available now in terms of manuscripts and portions of manuscripts from the New Testament, there are more than 25 thousand manuscripts that we can compare against. The closest, even the closest to that today is Homer's Iliad. It has only about 1,750. It's incredible to think about. And so just from the standpoint of a bibliographical dimension, we have absolute assurance, confidence that we have the close to the autographs of the manuscripts because of the early dating and also the large number of them. Let's talk about the Old Testament for a moment. In the Old Testament, if you'll put up the picture here just for me for a second, if you will. Uh, back in 1947, there were a couple of sheep herders out in, uh, in a place near Qumran, Dead Sea area, and they were taking care of their sheep, and one of the guys throws a rock, and it goes into this cave. This is called cave number one at Qumran in the Dead Sea. And he throws the rock, and he hears a clunk. When the clunk happens there, it, they say, oh, well, that was interesting. What was that? So the guys go in, begin to investigate, and they find that there are some clay pots, in the clay, and in the clay pots, there are some scrolls. So they bring in the uh, archaeologists and so forth. They begin to dig out, take a look at what's there. They discover the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are numbers of different things. You can find many of them in the, uh, the, the shrine of the book in Jerusalem to this day. But one of the things they found in cave chapter 1 was an entire entire set of scrolls that gave us the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. Now, why was this significant? By the way, is everybody still with me so far? Turn to your neighbor and ask them, are you still listening? Go ahead and tell them, are you still listening? All right. Why is this significant? I'm going to show you why it was significant. Because prior to this time, prior to 1947, when we have our Old Testament, it's based off of, of a manuscript that we have that dates back to 935 A.D., okay? It's called the Masoretic Text, okay? The Masoretic Text is where your Old Testament comes from. It's translated into different languages, including English. And so our closest manuscript that the translators used to translate our Bible was called the, called the Masoretic Text. It was dated again about 935 A.D. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, were dated about 125, the book of Isaiah, dated about 125 B.C., okay? And so now we've got an, a manuscript that is 1,000 years older, or younger, we might say, in the sense of closeness to its autograph, than 
what we've been using. Now, here's the thing that scholars wanted to try to determine. Okay, now maybe, some on one side, maybe we can see the validity of the book of Isaiah and Old Testament scriptures. Some saying, well, now is our chance to prove it's not even right. And so they bring out the Masoretic text and they bring out the scroll of Isaiah, which is a thousand years older, and they compare. Let's see the discrepancies between the two. Let's see what kind of job the scribes did over those years. You know that they found almost zero discrepancies between some minor things a few minor things minor things mostly like in the realm of spelling where spelling was changed for example in our world today uh, in the American English we will we will spell savior s-a-v-i-o-r correct in the old English rendering of that same word it's spelled s-a-v-i-o-u-r okay well they would have found some changes of that nature but nothing that changed the dimension of the validity of the manuscript almost word for word it was the very same the scribes did their job. How many of you are thankful for some amazing scribes, all right? Okay. Now, this is extremely important. You say, Pastor, why are you taking time on a weekend to talk to us about this? Because I want you to have confidence in your Bible, okay? I want you to know that the Bible is accurate. I could talk to you today about archaeological findings and geographical stuff in the Bible that proved accuracy. I could talk to you about uh, just a variety of different things relative, just the existence of the Bible, that it lasted all those years, just that the scroll of Isaiah lasted in that, that, that cave that I showed you a moment ago in that arid environment. How did it even exist for that period of time? This is the miraculous preservation of God's Word. That we have treasure your Bible. It is real. It is true. It is accurate. It is the Word of God. Now let's talk about one more element here. God reveals Himself through what? Creation through revelation, the Scriptures. God reveals Himself through incarnation, Jesus Christ. I have no idea if we're going to get to the other three points or not. Let's talk about this for a moment. How do we know by the way, there's some verses there in Scripture that I didn't read for you. You can read on your own. Why do we know that Jesus is who He said He is? How can we have confidence? How can our belief be solid that Jesus is the Son of God? How do you know that He is the Son of God? How do you know that among all the, quote, religious leaders of history that Jesus is unique? How do you know this? Let me give you some reasons that we can know that Jesus is unique. You know that Jesus, when he, during His earthly ministry, fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. That's incredible. That just by the life and ministry of Jesus, you can see things that were predicted in the Old Testament hundreds of years, in some cases thousands of years before Christ came, 300 plus prophecies He fulfilled. We see that Jesus is who He said He is because of the miracles that He did. And these are miracles that were, were recorded in the Bible and what we have is our Bible today by eyewitnesses, okay? Eyewitness accounts of miracles. John said, we saw with our very own eyes these things. We beheld them. We saw them. We've seen him do these things. In fact, we didn't even tell you all that we saw him do, okay? We see his very own claim. He claimed to be the Son of God. Now, by the way, guys, let me tell you something. When you claim to be the Son of God, either you're crazy, right? Are you with me here? I mean, he walked up to me at the end of the service and said, Hi, I'm the Son of God. I'm like, uh, can we get a cart here somewhere? Okay, right. When you claim to be the Son of God, you're either crazy or you're real. Okay? There's no, there's no middle ground here. 
So he made a claim. So when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, so he made the claim that he was the Son of God. We also see it by his teaching. There's been no teaching that anyone has ever done that has had the lasting impact upon humanity as the teaching of Jesus did. But the primary way that we know that Jesus is the Son of God, because uh, Paul tells us this, the primary or the major proof that Jesus is the Son of God is through his death and what else? Resurrection, okay? This is pitiful writing here, okay? His death and resurrection. How do we know then that Jesus died and rose from the grave? Let's talk about that just for a moment. How do you know? Because would you agree with me that if Jesus rose from the dead, he's unique, amen? I mean, let me see you do that, all right? If Jesus rose from the grave, then we've got to stop for a moment and say, we better pay attention to this guy because we better pay, because this is different. This is, not, this is not standard operating procedure. If he really rose from the grave, that's why the Bible says everything hinges uh, on our faith on his resurrection. How do you know that Jesus rose from the grave? First of all, let's talk about his death because you can't, if they just faked his death, then obviously he can quote sort of fake that he came back alive again, and then, of course, we've got this myth that is propagated. So the, the soldiers, they, they were instructed to make sure that he was dead. They would not put him in the tomb until there was an assurance. Read the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You'll see the assurance that was there that Jesus died. When they put him in the tomb, notice what it says in Matthew chapter, chapter 27, verse 62. You can read this on your own time. The Bible says that Pilate ordered that, they were put, that he be put into the tomb, and the tomb be sealed and that there are two Roman soldiers because they did not want any kind of hoax to be propagated. And so we see that he's not only dead, but he's actually put in the tomb and it's a sealed tomb, a Roman seal and two soldiers. Let me tell you, normally soldiers don't guard tombs. But there was a guarding. It was just, this is another way that God's saying, I'm going to show you that this is the real deal. So there's the sealing of the tomb. So we know that he died. We know that he was placed into a sealed tomb. We know that Roman guards were there guarding the tomb. And then, of course, we know the story of Mary Magdalene's ex- ex- experience with Jesus and interview with Jesus, interaction with Jesus on Easter morning, and then the interaction of the apostles and Peter and so many others with him following that. And then the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there were 500 that saw him after his resurrection. So we have the post-resurrection uh, appearances of Christ. And then here's the thing that is so valuable to me. We have a group of disciples that believed so strongly in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. They gave their entire life to serve him. And most of them died in martyrdom for the case of believing that Jesus was alive. You see, all of these are evidential things. These are, as the writer Josh McDowell says, I love his statement, evidence that demands a verdict. This is evidence that demands from us a verdict. Do you believe or do you not believe? And I want to stand firmly today and declare that I believe that God revealed himself to us through his son, that Jesus Christ indeed is the son of God by all these things we've mentioned and the capstone of that being his resurrection. Take a look with me at the scriptures here. That is what it says. I'm just going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, because I'm running out of time, okay? Long ago, God spoke in many different ways to our fathers, to the prophets and visions, dreams, and even face to face, telling them little by little about his plans. But now in these days, he has spoken to us through his 
Son, to whom he has given everything and through whom he made the world and everything there is. God's Son shines out with God's glory and all that God's Son is and does marks him as what? As God. Read the rest of it in your own time. Let me lead you to the third one, all right? Third thing today is you need to know that God is a God of wisdom, truth, and authority. He can, has, and will show us the right way to live. That God will show you the right way to live. To God belongs wisdom, the Bible says. How many of you, just a quick uh, note here, just a question for you. How many of you have been in a place in your life before where you didn't know what to do, you had no idea how to solve a problem, how to address a situation, how to move forward in something, you ask God, and you know that God gave you an answer. Raise your hand, let me say, see, that's the God that shows you wisdom. He is the God that does that. Number four, the fourth thing I want to leave you today, what do you believe about God? You must believe that God is for you, not against you. I like the little spattering of amen I got right there. I'll say it again. God is for you, not against you. This is a critical belief about God because when you finally believe that God is not against you, it's a game changer in your life. When you get to the point in your life where you believe that God is not against me, God is for me. And I think all too often we have an opposite view of this. We somehow think that God is trying to get us or God is wanting to make our life hard or miserable. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God that is absolutely, totally, completely committed to you. He loves you beyond anything you could imagine. He loves you with an eternal love. He is for you. He is not against you. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That when you come into faith in Christ, God is not condemning you. God is drawing you to himself. Now, are there times in life that he works on us and challenges us and addresses things in our life? Absolutely. He does that because he loves us and he wants our life to be better. And that's the only reason. In fact, the Bible says that even the discipline of God comes out of the love of God for us. Romans 8, 31. What What then shall we say in response to these things if God is for us who can be against us. Last point today, and I promised I would get your blanks filled in, so here we go, all right? God is a God to whom we freely and fully owe our faith, trust, reverent worship, submission, and obedience. These are lengthy phrases, I know, but I'm giving them to you for a reason. I'm really trying to help your belief system here. God is a God, listen to this, this statement again, God is a God to whom we freely, that is not out of coercion, but we freely and fully, what do we do? We owe, what do we owe God? Our faith, our trust, our reverent worship, our submission, and our obedience. What does the word owe mean? There's something that is rightfully due. Correct? If I owe you something, it means that I, I rightfully, something is due you rightfully, okay? I, I can't, you can't say that I owe you if I don't really owe you, okay? But if I, if I borrowed $100 from you and I said I'm going to pay it back, I owe you that, rightfully owe you that. And so owing something is, is a rightful debt that needs to be paid. Now, when it comes to God, the, in relationship with God through Christ... The beautiful thing about what Jesus has done for us is that we don't owe him for our sins anymore. Jesus paid that bill for us. Isn't that good to know, right? 
You don't have to live your life paying for your mistakes, okay? Now, you might pay for them in certain consequences, but you don't owe anything back to God, okay? God paid the bill for you. The bill's paid through Jesus. Never take it for granted. Never take the grace of God in vain. Realize what a wonderful thing that is, that God paid the price for your sins. So you don't owe God a debt when it comes to having to pay off the bill for your sins. Jesus paid the bill. Anybody just want to say, thank God for that, right? Okay, thank God for that, right? I couldn't have paid that bill anyway, right? That's just massive bill I would have never been able to pay, okay, except with just dying. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's what's, what, what it really costs. So Jesus took that for us. But we do owe him because of what he's done for us. What is rightfully due him is our worship, our faith, our trust, our confidence, our submission, our surrender to him. What that means is this. It means this. Now that God has redeemed me, what I believe about him is that he is worthy now. Okay, I believe that God is worthy of me now living my whole life for his glory. Amen? Okay? Are you with me here? Okay. That what do I believe about God? I believe that God is worthy. That God is so worthy that now I am under obligation, not by God, but by what he's done for me, okay? That now I'm under obligation to God in a good way to freely live my life for his glory, okay? That in everything I do, I want to point to the worthiness of God, okay? Because I realize I'm not worthy, but God is worthy. Now look with me, if you will, at the last verse of scripture today, Revelation chapter 4, verse number 11. I'll read this and then we'll wrap this up. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So how do you and I even have our being? In Him we live and move and have our being. You would not even have life or breath if it were not for your Creator. You're the, he, he is the one that sustains you. He's the one that brings every good gift into your life. He's the one that redeems you and brought you into relationship with Himself. And so we live our life now for His honor and for His glory. That means that every day when I wake up in the morning, I wake up to say, God, today I want to bring honor to Your name. I want to live to Your glory. I owe You today day, my allegiance. I owe you today my fullest devotion and commitment. And so when we live that way, we live in an attitude of pleasing, bringing pleasure to God because we believe down in the core of our being that God is worthy. Amen. God is worthy. He's worthy of all that we offer to him. So what do you believe about God? Let me encourage you. Have confidence. Develop strong beliefs about God. See, our world it needs people like you and I that are established in our faith, amen? Not, not sort of wishy-washy in what we believe. We know what we believe about God. As Paul said, I know in whom I believed. And I know that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity that we've had to study your word, to be reminded of the things that we ought to believe about you. And I pray that you'll take these truths and let them find their way deep into our hearts and let us be established and fixed in our belief about you, not shaky, not tossed or turned, but solid, confident in you, in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us for today's message. I trust that you've heard something from God's Word that'll make a difference in your life now and forever. 
Maybe as you were listening to today's message, God began to speak to you about a personal relationship with Himself. You know, the most important thing we can ever establish in our life is a relationship with God, and we do that by opening our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, today is your day. It's your opportunity. And I want to lead you in a prayer right now that you can pray that will forever change your life, that will allow your name to be written in the book of life for eternity. All you need to do is simply pray this prayer with me and mean it in your heart. If you'll mean this prayer, God will hear you. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So would you pray with me right now? Whisper these words to God or speak them out right where you are. Say, Jesus, just mention his name. Say, Jesus, I admit to you today that, that I am a sinner and I'm sorry, God, for everything I've done wrong. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are God's Son, the Savior, the Redeemer. I thank you that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again. I believe in you, Jesus. And then whisper this prayer. Say, Lord, today I invite you to come into my life, to forgive me of my sins, to give me a brand new start in you. I give my life to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for those that prayed that prayer with me and I ask that now they would continue to grow in you and serve you faithfully from this day forward in Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer with me, friend, I want you to know that Jesus Christ heard you, that your name has been written in that wonderful book of life, and that now today you start a brand new life in Christ. And to do so, you need some help. You need to learn how to live your life for Jesus every day. We'd like to provide for you. In fact, we have available for you some resources that you can get from our website, church-redeemer.org, that will help you to get a good start in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So again, check out the website, church-redeemer.org. Find those resources that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. If you've prayed with the pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to www.church-redeemer.org newbeginnings. We pray that this message was a blessing to you.